with that, I would like to say a very big welcome to this week's episode of Value Nigeria Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in to listen to this podcast week on week. Um, your feedback has been really, really good and very encouraging. Last week on the podcast, we had an explosive discussion with um, a guest and it really, really was a blast. It really, really was. I thoroughly enjoyed myself in that episode. If you've not listened to that episode, believe me, you're missing a lot. Just go back and um, listen to that. In the same vein, um, we have another guest on today's episode of the podcast. Um, my guest today is a longtime investor, someone I've known for quite a while. He started investing at a very young age and he's gathered quite a lot of experience and knowledge about markets as you come to see in the course of our discussion today. My guest today is Mr. Peter Enye, also known as Nosa2 on quite a lot of um, investment-focused social media investing boards where he gives knowledgeable nuggets about investing. Do well to enjoy today's episode. Uh, remember, you can send your feedback to our email address and that's valuenigeriawithajibola at yahoo.com. Thank you very much for listening and um, do have a lovely time in today's episode. So once again, um, this is Value Nigeria, and on the podcast this evening, as we have earlier said, we have um, Mr. Peter Inye. He's a, an astute investor. He's someone I've known for a good number of years. I think the first time I came across him was on Stock Market Nigeria, and that must have been in 2006 or 2007. And he's someone that has stayed in the game, and he's someone I really respect so much. It's a pleasure to have him on the podcast this evening. Um Mr. Peter Enye, do you mind just um, saying one or two words or just saying hello to people listening on the podcast? All right. Uh, thank you for the introduction. <laughs> Looking up to my head is swelling. So, uh, yeah. Um, I'm Peter, I guess. I studied computer science at Uniben, University of Benin. Um, I've been in private business practically all my life since leaving school. So, yeah. That's that's pretty much it. I've done I've done lots. I'm I'm currently a cybersecurity consultant in Abuja. So yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Um, now I kind of believe that everyone's background in one way or the other, maybe their growing up years or one thing or the other, may have influenced them towards a career or towards a lifestyle of investing. Is there any point or is there any part of your maybe growing up years or formative years that you could tell that this was the inflection point and this was when I veered towards learning about investments and picking up that habit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, my dad is an avid investor. Like, one thing, one thing, one thing I, I still say till today and I still know till today, he has shares from Mobile Nigeria that he bought at IPO in 1980, I mean 1981. You know, so I should give you the kind of investor he is. I mean, though I think mobile has been sold now. You know, so uh, growing up as a child, I grew up around uh, annual reports and you know dividends. You know, so rather than giving us pocket money, then my dad would buy shares for us in a lot of Nigerian companies, which obviously have gone defunct. You know, but to me, investing investing wasn't really um, investing and making money wasn't really something you do. It was a way of life. Like, it was just, you know, like, if I see my friends drinking Fanta, 
in my head as a child then, I'm like, okay, I, I guess shares in Coca-Cola. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking some of your pocket money right now, you know, yeah. So, yeah, to me, it's always just been like that, you know. I didn't quite understand much details about it, but I always just knew that, okay, I was always proud to say well, I owned part of this company or, you know, and I, obviously, everybody likes making money. So, I kind of also enjoyed making money. All right. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't know if it's a pseudonym, if it's a pseudonym, or if it's like the short form of another name that you are known by. But you've always been known by Nosa, right from Stock Market Nigeria. Yeah, Nosa too. Yes. So yes. Is is that your name or is that a pseudonym? Yeah, or? it's my middle name. Oh, it's okay. my middle name. Now, when you started making investment decisions for yourself, or started, you know, when you got to that point where you were the one solely in charge of your portfolio, what was that like? Uh, empowering to be honest. Um, I remember very well. My mom started, my mom gave me, is he, I don't want to say it's a loan or a gift, she gave me 60,000. I remember it very, very well. Um, my dad's brokers, my dad's brokers were capital assets. So then, my this we're talking maybe this like early 2000s or something, you know. So my mom, um, gave me 60,000. My dad's broker used to come to the house, you know, we're, we're like family, in fact, we were family friends. That's his account of They were family friends. So I took my 60K, I invested it with them. I don't know, uh, Capital Assets. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name anyway. Capital Assets in Lagos then. Uh, and then I started trading, you know, I started buying shares, selling shares. And I grew within about two, three years. I grew that 60K, 60,000 to like 700,000 there. Wow. You know, I'm telling you. And then they offered me a job. <laughs> 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 So the guy was like, okay, ah, should we do analysis? You know, started praising me. And, you know, as a child, when you do something cool and everybody is praising you about it, you are gingered to, you know, do more. You know, so, yeah. But then, I, you know, I was like, I didn't take the job, obviously, you know. But that just even made me even more passionate about investing because I was not like, ah, this is something that everybody's proud about. Too, and I made so much money, you know. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Now, looking back at your practice, your investing practice back then, and, you know, yeah. looking back at that through the lens of what you know today, what did you do back then? Would you repeat the same today? Or what were the assumptions or the errors you make back then? Okay. Um, I, 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 I made the same mistake my dad made and a lot of people make which was that I didn't take the macroeconomic environment into focus. So, for example, over the past, um, let's say, over the past 20, 30 years, if you've been investing in Nigeria, you've pretty much been fighting, you know, fighting the current because the base currency in which you're investing is, is constantly declining, you know. So in, in, in terms of your purchasing power, it's, it's constantly being eroded, you know, just because the currency in which you're investing is losing value. So... Mistakes I probably made, I probably would have looked at foreign markets a lot earlier. You know, I mean, to be honest, the Nigerian market is very um, uncompetitive and it's very, it's easy. It's, Nigerian market, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very difficult, I'll say the Nigerian market is probably about two. It's extremely easy. You know, there, there are a few stocks to watch. You can pretty much, all you have to pretty much, pretty much look at is look at FX as in foreign investor inflows, try and time that, you know, it's not, it's not like, say, the U.S. market where you have tens of thousands of stocks, you know, and you have so many diverse uh, sectors and you have, you know, market that reacts within milliseconds of news breaking out. So, 
yeah, I would have probably looked abroad earlier in my life, you know, and I'm probably a lot richer than I am, you know. So, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably made a lot more money or kept a lot more of that, lot more of that value that I made earlier in life, you know. So, yeah, but I think, I think that's one mistake I made, and I think it's one mistake my dad made, you know, because if, if he had bought the mobile shares, for example, if he had bought shares in Apple at 1980 and held on to it now, it would be, it would be several million times yeah. more than what mobile shares are worth today. You know that kind, so that kind of value loss due to the macroeconomic environment, something I think a lot of Nigerians, including myself and my father, you know, overlooked. From what you've just said, can I conclude safely and or correctly that you don't do the Nigerian markets anymore? As I'm talking to you at this moment, I no, I don't. However, and this is this is more like a future prediction. I actually believe Nigeria is about to witness an unprecedented economic boom that would also that would be reflected in the stock market. So while I'm not invested in Nigerian stock markets as today, I know in the next say six months to one year that will change. You know, because I see the I see the tide moving in our favor as a country, right? as a country and as our economy, assuming we make the right decisions. Assuming we we support the government in making the right decisions. Let me put it that way. Interesting. Okay. Thank you very much. Now, um, is there a particular investing style that seems to suit you or that you feel, um, you know, works best, probably for you or generally? Uh, yes. So, um, one, one of the books I read, I've read while back in my life, Hot Commodities, made me realize that the entire financial market, in fact, the entire global market, financial or otherwise, is underpinned by the commodity market. So, for me, I tend to look at which direction the commodity markets are going to go. And then I try to see how that would affect the economy. And it then allows me to say, okay, if which sectors are going to do well over, say, the next five to 10 years, you know, based on what commodities are saying. And then I try to hop onto those sectors. Do you understand? So, you know, so for example, with the example I gave with Nigeria now, what, what's making me bullish on Nigeria is the fact that over the past, say, over the past decade, because everybody has been talking about going green and, you know, uh, electric cars and, you know, cutting greenhouse gases, oil companies have been reducing their capex or capital expenditure in terms of finding new oil fields and bringing new oil online. But then what the world has failed to realize is that, you know, electric vehicles in this world are probably still less than one to two percent. You know, and in the meantime, all the third world countries as Nigeria, India, you know, Russia, uh, probably the bulk of China, even bulk of America are still burning fossil fuels, you know, daily, you know, and this, that demand is not going to go away. Meanwhile, supply has been coming down. So I foresee oil, for example, hitting probably $200 in the next maybe one, one to two years. And based on that, that's now what is driving my belief that Nigeria, which is currently seen as, for lack of a better word, basket case, uh, I can see that boom coming because if oil hits $200 a barrel, these markets that everybody hits will suddenly become loved, you know. Mm -hmm. Then, I mean, I don't think the government is saying this, but coincidentally, the government wants to remove oil subsidy. If they happen to do that, then, you know, the sky is the limit. But, you know, let's see how the politics plays out. But even if the politics doesn't go in favor of what I'm predicting, I also see a $200 barrel oil 
if I'm right, will do wonders for us to fall, will do wonders for our stock market. You know, so that's why I said, for example, in the next six months, my views on Nigeria will change because I'm looking at the commodity market. You've brought up two subjects that we are still going to hopefully talk about in the course of this um, podcast, which is the the fact that commodities and your interest in commodities and then your interest in reading as well. However, just before we get into that, um, what's your process for finding you know, good companies and analyzing them? Th- how, how do you process them from discovery to buying? Um, okay. Um, normally, when, when, when I just started, right, when, well, yeah, when I just started, I probably looked at PE ratios, price to book value, you know, try, I, I looked at the fundamentals. And, and to a large extent, I still look at those. But then, you know, I think I've come to realize that, you know, um, management is probably a huge part of it, you know, which may be, which may be difficult to see unless you actually read the annual report and, you know, try to get into the head of what management is thinking. So, yeah, management, then the basic fundamentals of the company. I think those, those are things that kind of drive me, you know. Then I've started to dip my foot into technical analysis to know when to buy, even though I would be, I'll be the first to admit that technical analysis is, might as well be voodoo. Like it's, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's just complicated guesswork, but I, people do it. So I try and follow them and see what they are trying to see, you know, but yeah, so those are, those are the things. So fundamentals, uh, um, the company's management, because some companies are just fraudulently managed, both home and abroad. It's, that's just the fact of life. And then, you know, I try to use technical analysis to pick a good entry point. And particularly, if I, if I were to prod further about management, what are the telltale signs of management that has the best interests of shareholders at heart? The telltale signs. Um, you would see it. You would see, you would see honesty in their, not let me say you see honesty, you see their, you see in their actions, their, um, they gain financial reward if the company does better. Do you understand? And so, I mean, to say what are the good, I, 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 it's probably easier for me to give you bad examples. So, for example, a few years ago, maybe from maybe about, God, it's 10 years ago now, I read the annual report for Ikeja Hotels. This is a Nigerian company now. And I found out that the management, they were allocating themselves hotel, permanent hotel rooms in the hotel. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, fine. That just tells you the kind of mindset that they feel entitled to use the company services for free like they don't they don't understand the fact that listen they, they, you know just because they are big men doesn't mean that they're, they're doing a job they get paid a salary so if you want to use the company services you should pay for those services you know um so that kind of put me off the casual hotels even though i totally love the fundamental i love the, i love the company so that put me off i, I first of all i don't have, i don't have to do something like Rwanda, obviously <laughs> but a good company you would see you see management wanting to grow value for the company. So they could say, they could, for example, tie, you know, their remunerations to the share, to share price movement or tie remunerations to increase in profits or something, you know. So once, once you start to see those things, then you know, okay, these guys, I don't say they're good guys, but these guys get paid if the company does better, you know, rather than them buying corporate jets or, you know, or trying to structure very complicated deals to to confuse the average investor. Do you understand? So yeah, 
that. So you, it's not, it's not, it's not black or white, but you can see things. It's you know, you you can sense where their mind is, and then you can then decide if you want to go along the ride with them or not. I I totally agree with you on that. Just sensing subtle cues from management, and you can then use that to make a judgment as to if they are acting in your best interest or just for themselves. Um, I'll go back to the commodities issue that you talked, you raised earlier. I know you've you have a particular play on gold as a commodity. You've talked about oil just now. Can you just talk us through your thinking about gold? And how how you're able to play that commodity, and how you're able to make profit of that? There's a, there's the famous saying that gold is a hedge against inflation, and everybody says that, and everybody knows that. But few people have actually thought to think why. So gold is a metal, just like iron or any other metal. And what people don't realize is that gold is practically the ultimate metal. So it's if it's it's the best it's one of the best conductors we know. You know, it's it's high. It doesn't corrode. So, in terms of demand and supply, which is what I believe ultimately creates price and value, the best the best metal to use in wiring your house is gold. Right now, there's limited supply for gold, but then there is all this potential demand. So, as the price of gold falls, that potential demand begins to kick in. So, for example, I think copper right now is trading about maybe I don't know. Don't quote me on this. About four dollars a pound or something, and gold is probably trading about uh, I don't know a thousand eight hundred an ounce or something. So, obviously, it's not, it's not cost effective to use gold to wire your house. But if gold starts trading close to four dollars, it then becomes effective to use it. So, so, as the price of gold falls, the demand is going to naturally pick up, and that creates some sort of um, floor or some sort of resistance to how far it can fall over the long term you know so with regards to gold while people can think oh um, something like bitcoin for example can be a store of value gold as a store of value is actually better it's actually an ideal store of value because as long as humans use metal the distance at which gold can fall is limited because as price keeps going down demand will naturally kick in. Like, for example, there's this James Webb telescope that was launched and gold was the ultimate, was used in lining, in um, building the mirrors because it's because of the properties that it has, you know, that, and that's so, at the current price of gold right now, we're only the most necessary um, things or the most necessary projects apply gold there. But then as the price falls, less less important um, projects will start to use it, and that will now create demand for it. So, as a, as as a hedge against inflation, it's not just the fact that people believe in gold; it's more of the fact that there is pent up demand that's that kicks in as price falls. You know, so yeah. So, for example, I've I've told myself every child I have one thousand ounces of gold went for you when I die. Apart from that, you know, because I know you know sometimes it's, it's I I I just believe that you know. Uh, the demand and supply factor would always make sure the price is, I don't say stable, but is relatively valuable relative to other commodities, just because demand will always kick in. Now, okay. how did you do this play on gold? Um, was it buying like gold as a, as a futures? Or how did you personally play this ploy on gold? Okay, okay. Um, 
um, there's this there's this crypto Pax G. It's a it's a it's a token on the Ethereum blockchain that is tied that represents an ounce of gold. So one Pax G token represents an ounce of an ounce of gold stored in a vault somewhere in New York, and it's audited. So you can go on their website. They're audited by I think it's the New York Federal Reserve or something, you know. And the gold is the physical gold is there. So I bought that. And then, um, well, pretty much I held onto it. But then there's, there's another service, uh, Nexo.io, where I bought the PaxG token and I was earning about 5% per annum on the gold. So I was earning 5% per annum on the gold token itself, which is like earning more gold on my gold. You know, so yeah, that's how I did it. Oh, I was when the price when the price went up, I, I sold, you know, <laughs> luckily. Now, you're a man of many hats, and I know you have various facets to you. To you, I also know you do some playing agriculture and all. Can you just talk to us yeah. a little bit about agriculture? Your experience in that. So after the 2012 uh, that and uh, until Jota protest against fuel subsidy um, hike on that Jonathan, I, I saw that. I saw where the government was coming from at that time, and I saw that the naira was going to collapse. So. And with, with the Naira collapsing, I also believe that commodities were going to, well, back to my commodity play. I also saw that food prices were going to go up. It was, it was, to me, it was just pretty much obvious. So I acquired, and food prices go up, obviously, farmland goes up as well. So I acquired some land and I started farming. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that the structure of Nigerian agriculture space is fundamentally flawed. So farming in Nigeria would most likely never be profitable or not it will not be profitable not, yes it will most likely never be profitable and that's not based on nigerian fact or anything it's just based on the fact that the western countries subsidize their own agricultural produce so we're pretty much rolling the rock up a hill because those other guys can produce below cost and sell because their governments pretty much pay them to you know but i didn't know this at the time so when i got in you know i did the whole thing my first year, I made a loss. I said, okay, fine, uh, teething problems. Second year, I made a loss, and I, I looked at it, and I think I was doing sesame at the time, sesame seeds. And, you know, and it was pretty much because I looked at it, there's no way anybody, no matter how good your yield is, there's no way you can make a decent living off this, you know? And then I looked into the sesame market in the US, Russia, and I suddenly realized that those guys, they're not making a profit either, but their government is paying them just to farm. You know, my government's not paying me just to farm. So, you know, it's and we're all and we're all going to the same commodity market to go and sell the same sesame seeds. You understand? So, yeah, so that, that that was so my farming experience was a total loss. It was a total disaster. What I do now is I rent out my farm to whoever wants to try. Yeah. Now, what's your take on cryptocurrencies? I, I know you've mentioned a few bets here and there with cryptocurrencies and interchanging it with your gold plea. But what's your overall look at this market? Are, are we sitting on a time bomb? Is this something that might change the face of finance? Okay, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, I think people it's it, people lump up the whole thing. You know, so for example, I, I believe and I have always believed that Bitcoin is the biggest bubble in human history. I I, I don't get it. I don't get the value behind it. I don't I don't see the utility. I'm yet to meet anybody that has actually told me why it's useful or why it's necessary. But then I then look at um, smart contract cryptocurrencies, so things like Ethereum, Cardano, 
you know, Solana and all that. And I see something that brings efficiency, not just to the financial markets, but pretty much to anything where a contract can be written. And I genuinely believe from the bottom of my heart that those things are going to change the world as we know it. They're going to, they may not, they, it may not be so prominent as always oh, cryptocurrency that we're working with, but it's going to affect everybody's life at some point, you know? So yeah, so I believe when people say crypto, they, they are the bubbles like Bitcoin that would, that I feel are going to fall, maybe not down to zero, maybe down to like $1 or something because I'll be that last guy that will just buy everything. You know, but then there are smart contract cryptocurrencies that would be useful. And with utility comes demand. And with demand, obviously, you know, price. But then I, I couldn't tell you what the price would be. But then, you know, yeah, so that's it. So yeah, I think crypto I think I think crypto will change not just finance, but I think crypto will change the world. I really I genuinely believe that. Yeah. No problem. Um, I'm not an ardent believer, but um I I probably need to start learning and reading about that. Um, talking about reading, I know you have an enviable and you know a very strong passion for reading. Now, why is reading important to you, and why should the average individual investor take reading seriously? Uh, in, fact, in fact, I'll correct you. That when we say the average investor, I think the average human being should read because I'm not just not when you read something boring or real meals and bone or something, but when you read books from people that have done something like achieved something not, not, not even necessarily in finance you I, well for me i literally feel my brain like opening up like you know it changes the way you see things so for example me talking about how commodities underpin the world it's not that i had some epiphany or i saw some vision no i read this book called commodities by jim rogers and it completely blew my mind i was like wow you know, and then I took what I was reading and I put it into reality and I was like, you know, I could I could just see it. Now, Jim Rogers is like a 70-year-old investor who has had decades of experience. And by reading a book for maybe a week or two weeks, I could see where he's coming from. Do you understand? Uh, I read another book by Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, you know, and I could see how you walking down the street and noticing that, I don't know, there are more first bank branches or that more people are using CUDA app, you know, in their banking, will suddenly make you realize that, wait, first to CUDA is probably going to give a better result than the average bank because more people are using them, you know. So, yeah, so reading changes your perspective on life, especially when you read the right type of books, you know, because they, 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 they allow you to see or gain experience that people have spent an entire life gaining you know, and they literally hand it to you in a book that's probably worth, I don't know, $10 or something, or you can even borrow it for free, you know. To me, it's, it's a no-brainer. Like, even if you wanted to be, I don't know, a taxi driver, I'm sure there are books on being a better taxi driver than the average taxi driver. And if you read that book, you would suddenly realize that, wow, you know, these are the tricks in the taxi driving trade, you know. So it's not just about investing. It's about anything you want to do. Like you just said, you want to find out more about crypto. I'm sure there are things or articles or things you can read about crypto that would blow your mind and make you see see crypto in a completely different light, you know? So yeah, so yeah, reading is, yeah, it's, like, it's, tra it's transformational. I've taken a note of the hot commodities by Jim Rogers that you mentioned, and I'll definitely add yeah. that to my reading list. Now, talking about the average individual investor, are there yeah. any books that you can recommend that you say, you know, if you want to improve your investing practice, 
this and this and these books. I personally recommend them to you. Yeah, I, I also mentioned One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Um, I would also say Investment Biker by Jim Rogers. In fact, Investment Biker is not an investment book. It's more, well, it's, it's about investing, but about international investing. Um, if you have patience and you, and yeah, you, and you can read very boring books, Intelligent Investor. That's, that's an extremely boring book, but an extremely useful one, but very, very boring. Let me warn you now. Then obviously, every every child before the age of 18 should read, should read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, that's that's even baseline for being an adult, if you ask me. You know, so I should be like, I, I don't know why I should say you should read that one because you should have read it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Yeah, I think I think those, those are pretty much those are pretty much books that I would recommend. <laughs> Thank you very much. I have I have that investment biker is actually sitting on my in my library right now. I'm ju- just waiting for me to get to it. It's an excellent book. Okay. Now at present, at present, is there any book on your reading table? What are you reading at the moment? Uh Sapiens. I don't know if you know it's, it's Yeah, it's I've like, heard of I've heard of the book. Ah, my brother read that book. Like it's 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 not it's not about investing, oh. Yeah, it's about, it's about the human race and evolution species. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's another book. In fact, I'm slow in reading that book because I don't want it to finish. So I try and read maybe like a few pages every few night, every night or so, but every few nights whenever I have the chance, you know, because you you as you, as you, as you're going from chapter to chapter, your brain is open. Your brain is just opening, like you are seeing, you know, society in a totally different light. You know, yeah. So sapiens. Excellent book. I'll add that to my reading list as well. <laughs> now there's a there's a big debate between skill and luck. People who who are you know who are successful, if you ask them, they'll tell you to work hard, but they might not reveal some parts that luck might have played in their story. What's your take on skill versus luck in attaining financial success? Well, there's there's, there's a certain element of luck. I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the word skill. I'll probably use doggedness. You know, so you really have to want it. You know, in terms of you really have to be willing to make those sacrifices, like you know, sacrificing your time and all that. If you want to call that skill, you know, because even acquiring knowledge, reading books, for example, is a sacrifice that you have to make or to get yourself into the habit. You know, but then yes, there's a certain element of luck in that, for example. My mom was in a financial position to give me sixty thousand naira to say, yeah, this boy, you're always talking investment, 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 investment. Yeah, go and invest. You know, if 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 she was, I don't know, struggling to make ends meet, she probably couldn't have thrown that money at me or something. You know, so yeah, so there's certain elements of luck in that you need to have some capital, you know, to start off with regards to investing. But then you also need to be dogged in order to acquire the knowledge <clears throat> that would give you the skill to know what to invest in. Do you understand? I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. It does make perfect sense. Yeah. Seems you live yeah. close to a racetrack or is that Abuja people just... Um... It's Abuja people or Metama <laughs> rich men and their All right. Um, now, if, if you could meet one person um, living dead or a fictional character from a book or from any, any, any person whatsoever, who would it be and why would you want to meet that person? Uh, okay, jeez, oh, I'll probably say Winston Churchill. That was the British Prime Minister that took over from, yeah, that's in Chamberlain or something. Um, because at the start of World War II, the United Kingdom, which 
for all intents and purposes, just a tiny little island, you know, was faced with this huge behemoth that had captured France in like, what, 30 days or something. They had lost most of their equipment, lost most of their army, you know, yet as a leader, he had to find it in himself to galvanize the nation to believe in this objective that seemed so far, you know. So I probably want to meet him to ask him, like, did you even believe what you were selling? Like, you know, you were selling hope to people that, no, we have to be doing it. You know, it had to be like a bulldog bulldozing through the wall, even though the wall was made of 10 inches of concrete of steel, you know. He just had to keep hitting his head on the wall, saying, no, we can't give up, we can't give up, you know. So Mr. Churchill, because his doggedness in the face of such adversity and such unbelievably unfavorable odds, like really bad odds, you know, to be able to move an entire nation or a family or whatever, to be able to lead people through such despair. So I'd like to ask him, I really want to ask him if he believed it himself, you know. And I don't want to ask him how he did it, but well, did you really believe what you were telling me? All right. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you for your time this evening. Thank you very much for coming through for us. Uh, just before I let you go, do you have any last words or any advice or anything to give to an individual investor listening to you speak? Don't give up on Nigeria just yet, but don't bet on Nigeria either. So, you know, bet, keep, keep, your, eggs, keep your eggs abroad, but then be looking at Nigeria to make the right decisions. Because at the end of the day, I think we are in a country that if we get it right, would probably give the best returns over the next three, four decades. You know, that's what what I genuinely believe that if we get it right, but then, you know, it could also go so horribly wrong. So, yeah, so that's my advice, I guess. Thank you very much. It's been a blast speaking with you, Mr. Peter. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Do have a lovely week ahead, sir. Oh, you too.